When I asked, what is it? He gave me the medical definition of PTSD, which is you're traumatized from the events that you've witnessed or seen. And my immediate response to that, which I've heard echoed from a number of different people, whether they're veterans or first responders is, I, I never felt traumatized when I was working. That's where I felt most comfortable is when I went home and tried to sit with my family or tried to go to sleep or, or tried to do the normal things that most humans do that I, I couldn't connect in those situations. Welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, founder of Be Better Media and a mom of four, passionate about human connection. Throughout my journey, I have experienced many What I Meant to Say moments. But since life doesn't give us do-overs, I've created a space to reflect and tell our stories again with a little more grace for ourselves and the hope that we can help others and be better for having listened. Welcome to the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, and I'm here today with Pete Depry, um, a retired first responder who started the ASM Foundation. And um, he is deep into the work of helping first responders and veterans heal. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation because um, one, we met through a mutual friend that I'm just such an admirer of her work and that's Emily Hightower with Shift Adapt. And her work has been foundational in my life. And I know you work with her and she, when she said, you know, we needed to meet and have this conversation, I was all ears and um, I'm excited to dig in on really how we get to the root of healing. Let's start a little bit with, you know, where you came from and how you got into the first responder role and we can go from there. Sure. Um, Thank you for having me. Uh, So, well, I grew up in, I'm 45, I grew up in a time where we just didn't recognize the long-term repercussions of head trauma. And that's kind of something that, that I sorted out in the aftermath of the entirety of my experience. But going back through my childhood, because of that lack of recognition and just being a rambunctious kid in the Midwest, the more I look at my early years, the more I recognize we're just constantly smacking our heads around. Um, All they did back then was tell your parents to wake you up every couple hours, make sure, which to this day, I've asked a multitude of doctors, like, what's the justification for waking your kid up every couple hours after they have a concussion? And the only real answer that anybody can give me is, and as morbid as this sounds, so you don't find a cold, dead kid in bed. Like you're not going to interrupt the aneurysm that your yeah. the human is is potentially going to suffer. So there's really no justification for it. So we weren't doing anything about it. That's my essential point. So I played football and hockey growing up. Um, my mother's side of the family were all competitive water skiers, and I started barefooting at the age of nine and that's kind of the first place that I can remember you know you just ragdoll when you fall and I would come to we weren't wearing PFD or flotation life jackets back then when we were barefooting we would just wear the neoprene shorts and 
so I'd end up underwater and not know which way was up or down and kind of come to consciously and have to float to the surface. But even then it didn't dawn on me like, wow, I just, I was out for a minute. It, it I just floated to the surface, grabbed a line and, and went again. And so that kind of behavior continued where, um, I can remember film sessions in high school where we would be reviewing the game that we had played on Friday. And I'd be laughing with my friends that I didn't remember an entire series of downs um, because I had my head driven into the ground or taken a bad shot. Um, Into my twenties, there were more drunken escapades that resulted in me smacking my head around. Um, But then eventually when I was, 30 I got into um search and rescue which then melded into becoming a patrol deputy for the the local sheriff's office that was running the the search and rescue team and then I eventually transitioned it to another agency and went into SWAT and with SWAT we were dealing with a lot of um flashbangs short-barreled rifles and tight confines and small explosions and I, I didn't recognize it at the time, um, but having gunshots go off right next to my my head and not being terribly safe about my ear protection in a lot of those scenarios, th- there were several instances where my knees buckled. And I recognize now those were micro concussions that I was incurring. So all of that essentially added up to where symptoms started presenting. Um, I probably averaged four to six hours of sleep throughout my career. And that got cut down to about, I couldn't stay asleep for more than 20 minutes at a time. So then other things started popping up. Like uh, I would be carrying on a conversation with somebody and their face would just appear to me as it would look when they were dead. And I chalked that up at the time to, well, that must just be what happens when you're exposed to dead people all the time. Um, my short-term memory started disappearing. I started having vision issues, which I was always really thankful that I'd never had any vision issues, especially at night. I always had really good night vision and any light interference at night suddenly would cause this myriad of issues whether it was headaches or not being able to open my eyes focus um so i did what most people in those situations i had been sober from alcohol for almost 13 years to that point and because i was still active law enforcement alcohol seemed to be the only option to be able to sleep for more than the 20 minutes that i could at a time so i started sleeping or drinking again and that obviously allowed me to sleep, but came with more cognitive impairment, more agitation, irritability, and that snowballed to the point where eventually I had to separate from the office. Um, To their credit, they gave me several months to try to figure out a solution. And in that time, I went to different doctors who, diagnosed me with PTSD and prescribed me the normal list of antidepressants and anti-anxieties. 
but then essentially I'm going to work. I think I was taking Lexapro at the time and a ton of Xanax where I'm popping Xanax anytime I start to feel anxious. And then I get home and have two, three cocktails, fall asleep, wake up the next day. And eventually it, it just, it wasn't safe for me to be walking around with a weapon and, and that concoction in, in my system. So in January of 2020, I left the sheriff's office and my issue with the diagnosis, one was, it was essentially a checklist that the doctor read off and made his determination. When I asked, what is it? He gave me the medical definition of PTSD, which is you're traumatized from the events that you've witnessed or seen. And my immediate response to that, which I've heard echoed from a number of different people, whether they're veterans or first responders, is I, I never felt traumatized when I was working. That's where I felt most comfortable. It was when I went home and tried to sit with my family or tried to go to sleep or, or tried to do the normal things that most humans do that I, I couldn't connect in those situations. And my brain just wasn't working. So I wanted to understand the mechanical error that was taking place within my brain because as much as it felt physiological in a lot of aspects, I knew that the mechanism that was off the rails was in my brain. So I started digging and digging and this, this took months and months and months, but eventually I found the work of Dr. Mark Gordon, who's working with Warrior Angels Foundation. Um, and he had recognized that the symptoms of PTSD mirror those of TBI. And when they started connecting the dots with studies like Chris Bree's operator syndrome and looking at how many of these different attributes that are connected to being a, a, a knuckle, essentially carrying a weapon for a living uh, to TBI with these micro and macro concussions, it made all the sense in the world to me that I was dealing with symptoms of, of traumatic brain injury and neural inflammation. And as soon as I started treating that injury, my symptoms started to dissipate. They didn't, I'm not suggesting that this is a magic pill in any way. It took a lot of time and a lot of work. But the further I got down the path of this, the more I recognized these cognitive impairments had been inhibiting me since I was really, really young. So that in a nutshell is how I, I came to formulate ASM Foundation. I recognized Warrior Angels Foundation was representing veterans who needed this type of healing. There was no representation for first responders. So I started that. We went down the road with that and eventually developed my own nutraceutical that will hopefully get to market in the next two to three months, maybe maybe more, maybe less. It's We're still playing with it. Um, but that's an exciting element because these, the hard part about a lot of the tools that are coming to light that are showing real promise in healing these injuries is that they're exorbitantly expensive. And most people coming from my background can't afford an extra four to $600 in, in supplements a month that are going to allow them to be better at what they're doing. 
Um, and we're not at a point yet where agencies are willing to take on that cost either. So it's kind of trying to figure out what can I do in, in the entirety of this equation to kind of help keep things going forward and help the guys and girls that are still out there beating the pavement be better. That's, as usual, so much challenge in that story, but the way that you've transformed it into think, something that can help other people is, that is so my jam. And that, like, I just love hearing these stories of people that take really hard things and figure out how to use them to become stronger. And there's so many things in that story you just told me that resonate. Um, one, we're the same generation. So I, I remember you know, all of my football friends saying, like, I didn't even know which way to run. My team yeah. had to turn me around and say, run that way. Um, I have a, a, my son, I had a near, my, my youngest almost drowned when he was two. So when you tell that story of being under the water and not knowing which way is up, that's where my own <laughs> PTSD, um, if it didn't start before that, it certainly kicked in there. So that it's, it's astounding the things that we survive that you know as parents we worry about or or we didn't used to worry about and and where's the line and you know how how much we we hold now this these generation like people hold so tight to their kids and maybe in ours we were allowed to just kind of go out and figure it out and maybe the line is somewhere in the middle but there's so much to your story there that even from an early stage just really resonates and gives me pause and makes me take a deep breath and learn more about or know why it's been so important for me to learn about my own nervous system and you know I hear that in your story I mean and just going through the addiction cycle and that disconnection with self that happens with PTSD and TBI um, like I really commend you for being able to tell this story with such clarity and um, vulnerability without you know, I'm wondering how you got to that point of being able to share, um, so because it hel it helps other people so much. Well, thank you. It so within these different communities, whether we're talking about the sports world or society as a whole, or the veteran um, first responder communities. You hear a lot of, of people talking about doing the work, right? That yeah. there, there are no magic pills. And I think what the, the further I get into this, the more I realize there, there is no set standard that we can say, if you have one of these injuries, this is the protocol that is going to get you better. I'm guessing if we do this collective database of information sharing that you and I have talked about in the past, where all these different modalities of treatment are collecting data on what is most effective, we're going to find that a lot of it has to do with what the modus of injury was. But my, my bigger point is it takes it takes somebody exploring it themselves to figure out what works for them. In my case, I started taking the, the nutraceuticals, which are supplements focused on lowering neural inflammation. So the, the swelling in the brain that comes from these micro and macro concussions that cause cellular degeneration, 
which eventually will lead to CTE, right? CTE is like the cirrhosis of the brain, if we use the comparison of, of the liver and the brain. Wow. I've never heard it explained like that before, but yeah, that is, that's spot on. Well, I feel most yeah. people are, are familiar that if somebody drinks or utilizes drugs for a prolonged period of time, the liver starts to cellularly degenerate, create scar tissue. And if it reaches a certain point of damage, it's just going to completely shut down, which is cirrhosis, right? Cirrhosis, there's no coming back from cirrhosis. But if you catch it in time, thankfully, two of the organs that will cellularly regenerate if given the opportunity are the brain and the liver. So with the brain, you're going to start presenting with symptoms that are, in my, I'm guessing our, our physiology is so amazing in that we do get these little signals from it telling us that, hey, there's a problem here. We're not necessarily taught very well how to recognize those, those signals. And oftentimes the medical community just goes, let's just, you know, let's just hide them. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dig in on that a little bit. So those early symptoms, right? If, if you were talking to somebody, what would be the things that you might say, like, pay attention to that, that maybe your doctor isn't going to pay attention to, or maybe medicate, but some of those early symptoms, when you look back, I mean, I can go all my first concussion that we're aware of was at 18 months old. I, I flipped out of a walker. I still have a scar on my forehead. Um, but growing up, I was constantly being told, you're way too smart to be getting these test scores or you're way too smart to not be paying attention in class. It wasn't, I would agree with them in that moment. But the problem had more to do with me not fitting into the structure of that school. If I was going to recognize the symptoms that were presenting then, and I, I, I'm like, I'm going all the way back to look at this kind of in its entirety. It was, I would forget the beginning of the question when I was two thirds of the way through it. So I'd start the question over and then I'd realize, oh, I have a time crunch. I just need to get the, the answer down. And so I'd throw something down. And the teacher was always going, you know this information. If I sit down with you and go through it, you tell me the information. But why aren't you doing it here? It's just, it's lazy. So then you get labeled as lazy. Eventually, I would just get frustrated with being labeled as lazy. So I go, fuck, I'm... Yeah, totally. Yeah. So if I look back that far... We didn't have any tools at that time to fix those problems. And that was right when I was 14, 15. They told me I was dyslexic and had AD, ADD back then, it was called, and gave me Ritalin, um, which I, you know, didn't, didn't do anything. Um, so I look back now and recognize that's when I really... I wish that I had the tools that I had now. If I'm looking at my law enforcement career, <clears throat> sleep was probably the best indicator. I mean, you are not going to deal with the, the scheduling stuff. We worked 12 hour shifts. Um, you know, if you're working until 6 a.m., you get home by 6.30, 
decompress for a half hour, try to go to sleep at seven, even if you're exhausted, you're not going to sleep well from 7 a.m. until 2 p.m. Get up, work out, have something to eat, take a shower, get dressed, go back to work. Um, but when those sleep patterns went from fall asleep, wake up 20 minutes later, from a full-on dream that I thought I was back at work, wake up, get up for a few hours, go back to sleep for 20 minutes. Like those were really good indicators. My short-term memory essentially disappearing to the point that I needed to carry around a notebook. That's a big indicator. I don't want to say it was hallucinations, but it was my brain not recognizing what my eyes were seeing most of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yes. I when you said that you were seeing dead faces, I mean that that was an indicator of the PTSD, or I mean I've never had that experience that you're describing, but that translation makes sense to me. It's, yeah, yeah. So when I was really sick, nothing seemed real. And mind you, there there was a really my experience was really convoluted in that I left the sheriff's agency at in January of 2020, right as COVID was beginning to hit. So not only was my mind slowly dissolving into total chaos, but the world around me was as well. So I'm dealing with that as, as well. There was all the social issues between law enforcement and the, their communities. Um, the paranoia that begins to set in and the depths to the rabbit holes that you end up going into are really, really profound and, and weird. Um, the depression was beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, there were probably three to four months where I spent every day convincing myself that I could kill myself the next day, but I had to give myself that day. It was constantly like, just get to tomorrow. Just get, to, if I can get to tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, but I'm not going to do it today. And that was just the, it, it was almost like a selection course that, that we would be going to where you convince yourself, all right, I just have to finish this, this part and then I can quit. That was the mindset that I resorted to to get through that period. Um, wow. But, you know, it, it's, it's hard to go back and look at it congruently and know exactly what I would have used as an absolute signal that I needed help earlier. Because by the time I started drinking again, which to most people would be, well, wasn't that the biggest issue? It was so far before that even where I just stopped care like doing my job was the most important thing in the world to me. So much so that my my ex-wife used to get upset with me that our marriage wasn't a bigger priority. It, it, that job has to be all encompassing or you're not going to go out and do it every day. So when that started, when I, I lost motivation, this was a big part. 
a strange attribute that I've only really started to understand now. And I remember saying it to my ex-wife. I just wasn't motivated by challenge anymore. And challenging myself every day was something, whether it was with a long run or a workout or going to the range, something had to challenge me every day or I felt like it was a wasted day. And I got away from that. One of my oldest and closest friends uh, died really suddenly, had a heart attack and died, young guy. I've lost other friends and it was hard, but this felt like there was no tomorrow. It was crushing beyond belief. So those two attributes stand out to me as when I, when I look back, when my friend died, the level of depression that I felt from that, I remember saying to my ex-wife, like, this shouldn't feel the way that it feels. Something is wrong. I had already been drinking at that point. So most people in my life were just chalking it up to, well, he's drinking again. It was beyond that. So it's really hard for, I think, anybody to be to look back and, and know exactly what it was that they could have caught earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and mind you, if I had gone to any doctor at this time and described this, they would have done what they ultimately did. They would have pre prescribed me antidepressants and anti-anxieties and told me to seek talk therapy. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for antidepressants talk therapy or anti-anxiety meds, but those tools were not designed for long-term use. They were designed as a bridge to get you someplace so that you can utilize the tools. And th this is my belief. So that you can utilize the tools that are foundational to being an optimal human being, whether that's breath work, diet, exercise, the healthy attributes that we need to be exhibiting on a daily basis that ensure our mental and physical well-being are, are at the top that they can be. Um, sorry, that, that no, that was no awesome, awesome answer. I'm, I'm really just contemplating the depth of that human experience from 2020 to right now. It's 2023. And to sit here and listen to you have had that process in the last three years to hit whatever you call is rock bottom and come back with the knowledge of how to connect with your own body and the things that, that are really within us, which is what I love about what Emily and Brian teach is just look, teaching you to tap into that, your own nature and your own, you know, biology and, um, I'm wondering at what point did you realize that you needed to do that? Sure. So when, when I was introduced to Dr. Gordon and began his protocol, um, it was 10 days in. And, you know, at this point, I'm already in that depressive cycle of suicidal ideation being a constant. And... I think people have a misconception about suicide. I did. Um, 
for me, that same voice that tells you I'm hungry or I'm tired, those, those kind of almost, they're not parasympathetic, but it, it's, it's these natural instincts that your body plays out on a daily basis. That same process, that same voice was saying, there's a really easy way to not feel like this anymore. And you have to recognize it wasn't just emotion. Physically, my body felt horrible. Everything hurt. Everything was inflamed. I, my guts just felt awful. My head felt awful. And so the voice in my head is constantly telling me, like, why are we, why are we suffering like this? There's a really easy way to not do this anymore. Um, the, on a, the morbid end, I had thought through this. So I've obviously been on a lot of suicide calls where I'm, I'm cleaning up the back end of it. So I knew how I was going to do it. It was constantly putting it off to the next day that, that prevented me from doing it. But in, the, sorry, I'm going down another route. Well, you know in, what? Can I ask you something? And um, your honesty is amazing. And I, I'm in this time when you're feeling so low and so bad, and that was looking like an answer. Was that all within you? Were you asking anyone for help or were you telling anybody you felt like that? No, I didn't want to say, I mean, people would call and, and check in on me. Um, but I think if I'm not saying this with any prejudice, if somebody is, and I had been through these phases earlier on where for one reason or another, I would call a buddy and be like, Hey man, I don't feel safe being alone in the house with all these weapons where you come take them. Um, and they would do that. And I look back on that and recognize, okay, that was like a me knowing that I was going to reach this really, really dark point and taking these preventative steps. But I also can look back and go, I know I'd never shoot myself because I saw that fail too many times when people would try. Like, I, this stuff's not going to be fun to hear about on some levels because it's just the morbid reality. But I would like, I knew if I was going to do it, I was going to hang myself. I had gotten to the point that I knew I would put myself in a, in a trash bag so that it would be easier to clean me up because those are awful to clean up. So I had thought this through down to the point that I knew how I was going to tie the ligature, what I was going to use. Like there was something almost comforting to me in those times about because the voice in my head is calling so clearly and with just stop thinking about it, get it over with, Let, stop fucking around. It's like the same voice that when I'm really suffering through a workout is going, do not quit, just keep going. That same voice is telling me there's no, like we are not gonna get better. There, you're just prolonging the inevitable by not going through with this. It was the weirdest thing in the world. So people would check in, but I could dismiss it. I wasn't going to tell them what I was doing because I didn't want a bunch of people coming and, and checking on me. Um, I just wanted in the isolation aspect of this depression is a conundrum in and of itself because you don't want to be around other people. 
but that's what you need the most. You need other people to, to help you heal. So I started Dr. Gordon's treatment and at this time I would wake up in the morning and there was three or four hours where I would usually essentially just be in a daze. Like my, I knew I had no expectation that my brain was going to work. So I wouldn't even try. Um, I would forget if I had done anything. I, I wouldn't know if I had eaten that day, if I had taken a shower, um, you know. <laughs> so essentially you're, I mean, your brain really does just go into kind of a shutdown mode. Entirely. Yeah. I mean, you have to write at this time, I would come to driving down the road and freak out and pull over and not know, like, how long have I been driving? Where am I going? Where am I coming from? What am I doing? Um, I would, I would go like, two days without drinking and just suffering through that because at this point, I'm going through withdrawals. I'm questioning, am I going to have an alcoholic seizure? And, and that, I, I was 230 pounds when I graduated high school. I was teetering on 200 pounds walking around because I'm not eating. There would be four or five day stints where I wouldn't remember buying alcohol. I would just wake up one morning and every signal in my body would be telling me we are going to like my body is about to shut down if if I have any more to drink. And I would have spent the last four or five days drinking nothing but bourbon, no food, no water, just drinking bourbon. And that whole span of time was just gone into the void. No memory of it. Yeah. So 10 days into taking Dr. Gordon's treatment, I woke up one morning, I had a thought, I processed the thought and came to a conclusion and legitimately like sprang up out of bed and thought, holy shit, my brain's working again. There were disappointments in that after where I would, you know, it's like any other healing process, whether somebody has the flu and they're given amoxicillin and i think that's what yeah and five days in they feel better so they stop taking it and then they start getting sick again i didn't want to be sick so as soon it wasn't that i stopped taking the protocol i kept taking the protocol but your body's only going to heal in incremental yeah it's the one step forward two steps back in healing right Absolutely. I, I, I know that path and I've helped other people on that path. And I think there's so much grace that we have to give ourselves in those yeah. spaces. And so, you know, how on those one step forward, two steps back, how did you, how did you find that grace for yourself? Grace. It's recognizing that there's layers, right? And a good analogy that I'd love to use that. So when we look at trauma and I would have been the first person to scoff at anybody four years ago, the second somebody would start talking about trauma, I'd be like, oh, woo woo shit. Um, 
trauma to me, recognizing now that physiologically, our bodies and brains react to physical and emotional trauma with almost the exact same response. So if we look at physical trauma, if somebody damages a joint, as you start to repair that joint, let me back up. If somebody damages their hip, let's say, I had, I had a lower back issue when I was 14. Instead of dealing with that injury, I just pushed through as most 14 year olds would. And at 45, I'm still dealing with the repercussions of that lower back and hip injury. As I've started to get deeper and deeper into healing that injury, I recognize there's layers to it. And those layers are only going to unfold with time. And so recognizing the importance of patience throughout this process and that whether it's the universe or God, whatever you want to call it, is only going to allow you to heal in incremental advances at any given time. And that kind of the beauty of the process is that patience and that you have to learn the lessons that are involved in, in that exact portion of time or you're not going to get to the next layer. It's the hardest lesson to learn, but it's also the most beneficial, right? Yeah, absolutely. Stuff is the exact same. Yeah. The exact same as a physical injury. Yeah. And I agree with you. And I know there's a lot of talk. I don't know if it's just the world that that we're in now on this road of of, you know, for me it's generational healing. And but you do hear a lot about trauma. And I I didn't really have an identification for that for a long time. And then I came to realize that, you know, a lot when you do realize what it is, you start to compare yours to somebody else's and go, oh, well, you know, mine's not that big of a deal. I should look over there, look what they're doing. And, and then you feel shameful for, you know, whatever it is. And I do think like we get into this spiral of like comparing ourselves to each other. And yet the healing is the same. Yeah. Well, I always encourage people, I and I had to come to this realization myself before I could, that we can't compare our stories, but we can connect through them. Absolutely. And it's it's particularly difficult in the community that I come from because all of our training is predicated on this idea that you are the most you are the least important part of that equation. The person to your right and the left, front and back those are your most important responsibilities, keeping them safe, ensuring that not, you don't do anything stupid that gets them killed. So then when we come back around and ask somebody, do you need help? The first response that you generally hear is, I know a half dozen or more people that need it more than I do, go help them instead of me. But there's another part of our training that's equally as important as recognizing the, the, the people that you're on a team with, and that's that you don't create another victim. So if there's a rescue scenario and I know somebody needs help and I go rushing into the back country to try to pick them out and I get injured in that process, now the team has two people to come help and I'm not one of those elements that gets to help. 
I've just created a bigger problem. That's the same thing that we're looking at in this equation. Until you help yourself, you can't help others. And if you're staying in while you're sick, you're creating a vulnerability. And that's not fair either. Yeah, that's such a great reframe. That's it's huge. And I, it, it really removes the, that the ego and the, you know, feeling that self-importance or like it's less than humble and putting your own oxygen mask on first, you know, to use an analogy and it's powerful and it works. And it's so much what I believe about generational healing and, um, you know, what we do for ourselves first, we can then model. So the generational stuff is fascinating. And if we look at it historically, our grandparents at least in, in, in my case, my great-grandparents came from Scandinavia and walked right into World War One, had their kids, World War II, the Great Depression, Great Depression, then World War II. There was an element of necessity for the idea of sucking it up, right? I mean, from a survival standpoint, and there are times in life where Yes, you need to suck it up and, and motor through and get to the other side. But we've carried on those sentiments into emotional baggage, where instead of dealing with any of it, we're chalking it up to you're not tough enough. Um, you just need to try harder. All these dismissive aspects where it's um, it's when you get to this point of actually solving some of these problems you go oh that's way easier than just dealing with it or dis i'm sorry than disregarding it yeah carrying it it's like back to those physical injuries that we can use how many people do you look at on a regular basis that are walking with a limp or standing up and they they, they take some a half dozen steps to get fully erect and straight mm-hmm. instead of dealing with the problem we just carry it and that's ridiculous because then other people have to help with help us with it down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And then we pass these things down and all the things we're learning from, you know, through epigenetics and the, the types of, you know, how our genes respond, like as we pass it down, there's so much coming out in the science of, 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 you know, what's in our DNA and how our experiences influence that, that I'm absolutely fascinated by. Um, but I also agree with you, you know, part of it is like knowing how strong we are. And I mean, your story is an absolute testament to that, the depth of human despair to the places that we can rise to, you know, one step at a time, when we come back to these really functional tools, like nutrition and sleep and movement and connecting with other humans, which is so important and I think something that, you know, the world is kind of begging for right now, because after, you know, coming through COVID and knowing that we have our face in our phones all the time and not really do, I mean, you and I are even, and there's a lot of beautiful things about have, being able to have these conversations from a distance, but we really do need that human connection to be part of our healing. And I'm wondering what, you know, at what point in your healing process did, did you come to realize that that human connection was so important? I hope you're enjoying this conversation on What I Meant to Say, produced by my company, Be Better Media. 
To see the world of why we are striving to share inspired edutainment, I invite you to please check out our website, BeBetterMedia.tv. Here you will find all kinds of great stuff from upcoming new productions to lifestyle products and services I personally use and endorse, to links to great books and other podcasts I love and recommend. Please check us out at BeBetterMedia.tv. That's BeBetterMedia.tv. A big part of the isolation, I think what motivates the isolation has a lot to do with anxiety. So the anxiety that I would have, I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't my brain going, what's going to happen, at least outwardly. I wasn't worried that one outcome was going to happen versus another. It was with my fine motor skills, like going to pick something up, I, I would be worried that I wasn't going to be able to grasp it or sign my name or, and so I would just start jackhammering, shivering. And I didn't understand this physiological response that was going on. We can look back and I feel like most of the justifications or explanations for why anxiety happens are pretty broad. Whether we're looking at the hippocampus or different parts of the brain that we think are eliciting it, at the end of the day, the brain is wired essentially to recognize threats and keep us safe, right? We're, we're designed to be worrying about food, water, shelter, and immediate safety. It wasn't that I wasn't worried about any of those things. It was that nothing was making sense in, in the reality that I was viewing suddenly and experiencing and, and everything was... So at the end of the day, it was a lot easier for me to just isolate in my house. And during COVID, that was really convenient because I could have booze delivered if I wanted. I, you know, like I didn't have to go out. I could stay inside and everything came to me, which again, wasn't very healthy when I look back on it. But anxiety was what pushed me into further isolation. What ultimately pulled me out of the isolation was recognizing how much the booze and drugs, being the Xanax, were perpetuating the anxiety. So I would notice less anxiety if I wasn't drinking, more anxiety if I was. I think that is such a fascinating point that nobody, it's always been an effect for me if I drink, that yeah. I realized I would wake up in the middle of the night and just be over my skis like stress and I've never been a, a big drinker but when I did and that made me wonder and then I started reading about it and anxiety people don't realize because they drink to lower inhibition or not feel less and they don't realize how that anxiety comes rushing back in my opinion so much harder so it's interesting to hear you say that because I, I yeah I definitely correlate those two well and then the medications that are provided benzos are they perpetuate the same anxious sentiments when you're coming off of them oh. so it was 
getting to a point where I was essentially so exhausted that I wasn't willing to sacrifice the short-term the short-term benefits of drinking for the temporary relief of the anxiety. And my, you know, as most people will talk about, when you drank to the point that I was drinking or utilized intoxicants to that point, you stop getting the relief that you're you're seeking. So it it was October of 2021 that I just reached this point and I, I couldn't figure, I would go at this point, maybe two weeks without drinking and feel great. But then I would have the, the mind trick where my brain would go, look, I just went two weeks without drinking. Clearly it's not the alcohol. So I would, I would go buy a six pack, enjoy the six pack. And after the six, I'd go, well, another six isn't going to hurt. And before I know it, I'm drinking a case of beer or a bottle of bourbon. It, it always ended in the same place. So that got me to a place where somebody gave me um, psilocybin mushrooms. And I did a, a macro dose of psilocybin. And it was an overwhelming experience. And the best way that it could be. I saw myself very clearly. I had this bird's eye view of myself on two different paths simultaneously. And one path was where I kept drinking. And that path was dark and ruddy and filled with guilt and unhappiness and embarrassment. And the other path was bright and shiny and smooth and happy. And I could see myself going back and forth between the two paths. And there was no judgment whatsoever. It was like I got to view this and very clearly see one way of life is good. One way is dark and a lot more bumpy. And when I came out of that experience, it was the easiest decision that I'd ever made that I just said, I'm done with alcohol. I actually called Emily that day and we took a hike. Um, I told her about the experience. And thankfully, I have I can still romanticize the idea of how nice it would be to sip on a glass of bourbon. But I can, with equal acknowledgement, recognize how quickly that would spin out of control and how not worth it it is for more than anything the cognitive like i don't want anything at this point to impair me cognitively to a detriment there are certain substances like psilocybin that i still microdose um that i feel enhance me cognitively and, and help but i don't want anything that makes me feel dumb yeah and you have those things to compare it to, right? You've been down both roads, the, the pharmaceutical route, the alcohol route, the psilocybin route. And it's really glaring to me how we're in this conversation now in America where one of psilocybin is still illegal federally. I know I think you guys have done some things legislatively in Colorado where you are, but and we have this massive 
epidemic going on between alcohol and controlled substances and prescriptions just flooding into yeah. the mental health arena. And it, like my own life has been impacted by that. There's so many families and communities and just going out across our, our country that are, are so impacted by this problem. And then you hear stories like yours and there are so many of them and I keep running across them and I'm just conflicted and want to do something. So I just, I don't know how to spread this message without causing, you know, people problems that are actually have access to healing, but it's so powerful and it's so necessary. And maybe that gets us into how, you know, where you got to be able to start ASM foundation and what your, your goals were behind that. But your story is really powerful. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to point fingers through any of this process. I'm not suggesting that's what, what you were doing, but it, it's a very easy, it's the, the low hanging fruit for me in this conversation, and I'm talking about that globally, is to go look at what the medical community and the pharmaceutical companies and, and all these different, I think, as I said earlier, there are outlets when, and we can use it. So are you familiar with the stellate ganglion block? Uh, vaguely, can you explain. It's a nerve block um, that is injected into the, the, the neck. And I have yet to hear anybody say that it didn't provide them immediate relief from anxiety and stress and all the horrible symptoms that, that we associate with these different mental health ailments. It lasts about six months and then you have to keep doing it. I think it is a miracle bridge option to provide somebody who is, like, when I was dealing with the suicidal ideation stuff, it wasn't, it was, that the anxiety felt inescapable. It was that the sadness was on a scale of feeling like nothing could ever be resolved that I was dealing with. And there was no way out of this hole. And I did not see any reason that I could justify just staying in this hole. So if I could have gotten that at that time, I think I could have gotten sober and, and started dealing with a lot of these issues earlier and sooner. So I think tools like the Stelly Ganglion Block are really great if we're then going to take that person and go, okay, we need to start looking at your diet. We need to start looking at how you're exercising because we don't want to take somebody. If, if somebody has not been exercising for a prolonged period of time, or they have no history of, of exercise, and we take them to a gym and we just punish them and go, this is what you have to look forward to. They're not gonna wanna do that anymore. Nope. Right? We have to get them healthy. And most people who have not been healthy for a long time, look at these, it, it's like the top of a summit looking at it from, from the creek bed below, right? right. It's surmountable you start with baby steps and that's back to what we were talking about with being patient with these processes. Breath work is not an immediate resolve type 
exercise and, and, and behavior that you're going to try once and it's going to be this immediate relief. It's like yoga or meditation. These things take practice. That's why they're called practices, right? Absolutely. But then you get to a point where I have, I have busy days. Generally, I, I wake up, I have my coffee, do my morning routine, and then I'm going until the end of the day when I get to relax for an hour or two. In that time, sometimes I will have to sacrifice one of those tools like breath work. And, and when I'm talking about breath work, my practice is generally, I'll do it sometimes at the end of a workout, after jujitsu. If I'm just sitting, right, if I'm driving for a long period of time, it's a great place to do breath work. Mm -hmm. So I will notice myself getting more anxious and I'll recognize I haven't done breath work in a while. And the second I get back to that, all that anxiousness goes down. Yep. These practices become part of your central nervous system's reaction to the stressors that you're feeling on a daily basis. And once you've practiced them for a prolonged period of time, then they become really useful, but it takes time and it takes patience. And we as a society have become so accustomed to immediate resolve that we're not willing to put in. I have a, a, a dear friend who apologized recently because he hadn't texted me back in, in several days after I had reached out to him. And he said, I'm sorry. I've been down with COVID again. This is the fifth time this year I've had it, but I got my booster. So I think I'm feeling better. And I asked, well, how much vitamin D3 are you taking? Are you taking zinc and magnesium? No, I don't take any of that stuff. And I said, well, I think you might find more resolve by upping your vitamin D3 taking some magnesium and zinc and probably getting out and exercising a little bit more. And he said, yeah, I'm sure that works for you, but you're healthier than I am. And that's the mindset that so many people, at least in the U.S., have now, which is, I don't have time for it. I don't have the energy. I don't understand. It's excuses. It's just like the grocery store that we look at. And there's a, you and I talked about this, I think, there's a health store section in the food what's the rest of the food then amen it's the majority of the store what is the rest of the food uh, yeah that's a whole conversation in itself when we talk about our food supply and the things that we have that are in it and i come from an agricultural background so i don't think we started out to be where we are but we're not in a good place I don't think we started out to be where we are, but we also did not have the health ailments, the mental health ailments that we do now. And no. when you people about, and you say brain health, they'll look at you like they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's the processor for everything. Absolutely. And I read the first book I read on this was Grain Brain. And I was like blown away when he started drawing all of those parallels between you know our enteric nervous system and how our gut health and our brain health are re related and i and and absolutely connected and i i don't think we're still not talking about that enough out there no. 
Well, in that back to the anxiety aspect, something that I realized in retrospect when I was doing the probiotics and the supplementation and the exercise and the breath work was, wow, most of that anxiety began in my gut. Mm-hmm. And once I got my gut microbiome, and I'm not suggesting that I have my gut microbiome licked and, and it's exactly where it is. It's a dynamic fluctuating system that, that has to constantly be uh, reintroduced to different variables. But I don't get those anxious waves that I used to, that, that felt uncontrollable. And it is something that I'm paying attention to on a regular basis. And when I start feeling gut imbalances, I address those and they go away. So we're constantly, I mean, this is kind of gross to talk about. We'll walk into any bathroom in the United States and tell me that we don't have gut issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And learning how to pay attention to that stuff is wandering around until we hit that place where we're so foggy, we don't know which end is up. And teaching kids from a younger age, like all of these little things matter. And I always say like, yes, we have to be open. You know, maybe we can't learn things at 12 that we can at 27 or 40, but we certainly could be doing a better job. And the way that we start with ourselves and implement these tools and figure out the ones that work for you so that you don't get totally bowled over by this list of things like you were saying. I mean, I know I had that point where I was on this healing path and feeling like I had to do a hundred things a day to feel better. And that I, I very much coach people now, like just pick one or two, see where it gets you. If that doesn't work, try something else, kind of like the elimination diet, figure out what works for you. You have to baby step it. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're looking at supplementation, for example, supplements generally take about two weeks for most people to store enough of the supplements that your body's able to really utilize it and get the full benefits, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens with most people is they take the supplements for two or three days, they don't feel any immediate resolve. And so they stop taking it. D3 is one of the most consistent supplement or, you know, vitamin, it's actually a hormone that people were insufficient in, or I'm having a brain fart now. That's okay. Yeah. Had a deficit of when they were getting really, really sick with COVID. So generally speaking, we are designed to be outside and exposed to sunlight with far fewer clothes on absorbing D3 that way but we're not getting it for a variety of different reasons. I'm not putting fault on any of those reasons. I'm just saying we're not getting it. So getting supplemented vitamin D3, getting enough that your body's absorbing, which we're all going to absorb vitamin D3 at uh, different levels. Um, It's imperative to your overall health. That has to do with your brain health, with your body health, how you're, you're going to be sleeping, how you're digesting. I mean, it's just a, if I was going to tell somebody, this is the most important supplement for you to be taking, it would probably be vitamin D3. I agree. And as a population, we are totally, we're we're, almost everybody's deficient from what I've been told and has been my experience. 
And one of the things my daughter was just telling me this week, and she's like, mom, I bought a lawn chair and uh, I pay attention to the UV index on my phone. And uh, she goes, so it's been really low lately, but I still sit outside and study and, and eat all my meals outside. And I think it's helping. And I said, yep. I, undoubtedly it is. And so there are little simple things that you can do, but if you don't know to do them, if you don't know it's going to make an impact over time, then we don't put the, you know, we, we don't know what to focus on. So, you know, these conversations are so important to put this stuff out here. Education is a huge part of it. And we are seeing it in, in some places. I think different, it's hard to have these conversations and not point out the, the, the problem is the pharmaceutical companies don't make money from us increasing supplementation and eating better. Um, I'm not painting them, my, I'm not trying to paint them as complete villains, but there's also an aspect of the medical community where I have been told by doctors that supplement, you know, you, you pee out most of the supplements that you take which is true on some levels, but to dismiss it as not beneficial is equally as, as ridiculous. I don't know what the numbers are now, but uh, I looked into this a number of years ago, and I believe there were only two medical schools in the US that required nutrition as part of their curriculum. So most doctors who are seeing patients are not educated in nutrition, which I think if you told most people, they would recognize how absurd that is, that we don't teach nutrition to our medical providers as a staple element of the knowledge that they are passing on to us. It's mind-blowing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely mind-blowing. It's and yeah, it is. And, you know, I think that's more and more why people, when they get on a healing path, they start searching for naturopaths and homeopaths and supplements and things that, you know, are not part of the necess the, the medical mainstream, but I think they're becoming more and more so. And in part, I think because of the podcast world, like I, I really, part of my drive to start a podcast when I woke up one day, I was like, you know what, I'm ready to do this was because I had been listening podcasts had been part of my healing and a lot of this stuff like from Huberman and um, Finding Mastery and all these podcasts that that were teaching me about how to heal and thrive it wasn't the mainstream news it wasn't my regular doctor it was the people that were coming through this podcast circuit and I was like wow that there's a lot of honesty going on over there and that's what I love about it right and I don't want to paint a bad picture of the medical community from a foundational standpoint. I think most people that go into medicine care about other humans and want to help them get fixed. The issue is that there just hasn't been enough focus on how important what we're putting into, it sounds ridiculous even to say, there isn't enough focus on how important it is what we put into our bodies. Most yeah. of the pharmaceuticals that we utilize on a regular basis, create more inflammation. They disrupt the gut microbiome. They 
will maybe suppress immediate symptoms, but the long-term detriment just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. No. And and that's what you say, where, where you're getting to there is, and I think, you know, from where we started our conversation is just getting to that root cause. And the symptoms are there and they're, they do need to be addressed, especially in the short term when you're really at, at wit's end. And, you know, you can hear that in your story, but then where do we go from there and how do we delve into that story that helps us get to the root cause? You know, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on, you know, how, how we can encourage people to keep looking. I think it is wildly important for us to start focusing on the younger generations and teaching them about their physiology and the importance of recognizing stress, recognizing the, important of know, the importance of knowing where their food comes from, what they're putting into their body. Um, there, what I always, it, is it chasing the tiger? What's the book? Oh, the tiger. Um, hmm. Becoming the tiger, chasing the tiger. I always botched the title, but it was essentially, uh, we'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah. We'll the, yeah. The author studied predator prey response in the natural environment and he uses this example of if a cheetah is chasing a gazelle and the gazelle gets away, shortly after the chase, you'll see the gazelle do this little trauma shiver. And as soon as it's done that trauma shiver, the experience of the chase and of almost losing its life is over and gone. If it held on to that trauma, it would never put its head down to feed. It would starve and die, right? Because it would constantly be hypervigilant looking around for the cheetah. Humans are taught to process, or humans inherently are designed to process trauma in the same way. We've just been taught to suck it up and push it down and, and not deal with it the way that we're designed to deal with it. So utilizing these tools like breath work, like diet and supplementation and these very primitive tools that are at our disposal whether we like it or not those are essentially what we need to be doing on a regular basis and being outside not inside this idea of the metaverse and oh gosh i know going deeper i know, I know. <laughs> and i mean yeah the 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 concept i mean after working with emily and really latching on to a couple of those um you know, core tenets of theirs where your biology becomes your psychology and, you know, alchemy over strategy, which means like you're going to figure out out of all these hosts of things, what works for you. There is no silver bullet. And though just the way that we can, if we can turn those into our everyday lives and really start to affect our physiology and our biology, it changes the way that we think. 100%. Well, look at ice baths, right? Yeah. People hate ice baths. When you've gotten used to doing ice baths, your body ends up calling for it. And the shock of the experience dissipates to the point that it's it's welcoming. And yeah. I what so when I was talking earlier about getting to a point that I didn't, I wasn't in 
I wasn't motivated by challenge as much. Getting in a cold ice tub is is a challenge. Accepting mm-hmm. <laughs> that discomfort and processing it and becoming okay with it is challenging. But the more you do it, the easier it gets. And that translates to everything in life to the point that when you're presented with these stressors, you know how to utilize your breath and how to think through the process and get to a comfortable place where it's not difficult. You're not pushing back against it, right? That changing these thought patterns has been one of the most difficult parts of the process for me, right? Because I recognize that a lot of my thought patterns stem back from early frustrations in childhood where my brain wasn't working the way that, that it is. I find it working now. I use the example from jujitsu constantly because it just makes sense to me, but generally in jujitsu, if you're being presented with something and you're trying to push it away, you're making yourself vulnerable. If you allow it to come in and you accept it, you'll find a way to reverse the situation or make it more advantageous to your position. And we can do the same thing with all problems in life, where when we stop pushing against it, it's like beating your head against a wall and expecting it to give. Allow the problem to come. It's that Bruce Lee quote of be water. Don't, you're you're not going to, push the water away it's going to come whether you like it or not it's just learning how to be okay with it yeah God, that's, that's beautiful and it's, it's actually one of the thoughts that came to me on my yoga mat this morning is that like you know life is just this constant um learning of what to hold on to and what to let go of and and I'm I'm continually amazed that through these healing conversations how, how often jujitsu comes up because it's just a beautiful art form and I, the, I, I'm in awe of the community and I know people across the country whose lives have been changed by their jujitsu community. So I think it's, it's really cool to hear. It's a beautiful thing, but I think it, it, back to what we were talking about with those layers. Yeah. And jujitsu can, one of the beautiful things about jujitsu, and I think we're all susceptible to it, to at times is you start thinking uh this you know i got this thing figured out and we do that with life too right it's like i've i've healed i've i've done the work i'm good now this is when i get to start telling other people how to do it i don't have to put it and it is the best way to set yourself up for an inevitable ego check from the universe where you go oh, there, there really are layers to this and there is no mountaintop. And that's how jujitsu is beautiful, a beautiful reflection of life where the second you think you have it figured out, you're going to get just put in your place and recognize com- it's not comparing yourself to somebody else. It's that there is no mountaintop. It is this entire experience is just about learning and continuing to develop and continuing to get better. And the second you stop working, you become stagnant and somebody else is getting better and you're going to get smacked in the face and learn real quickly that there's still a ton to do. But that's the beautiful part, too. 
Yeah. No, I always say, you know, lifelong learning is the key to longevity. Like it just keeps life interesting and rewarding on so many, so many levels. But um, I'm connecting with what everything that you've learned and kind of realizing that maybe that's where your ASM foundation kicks in because some of the things you hit on, if we were teaching, if those things were being taught in law enforcement, and I have no idea what's being taught in law enforcement, but man, if some of those tools sound like they could be really, really instrumental in handling the types of situations that you guys are up against. Um, so I don't know, is that something that you do at ASM or is it, what are your thoughts on some of these practices being brought into the law enforcement world? It's it's a hard, uh, there's a multitude of issues that hold up law enforcement being able to do what's best for law enforcement. Um, law enforcement as a whole needs an entire restructuring from the standpoint of how much time they get to focus on training and the utilization of these types of tools. Um, so that that's budgetary, that's staffing issues. I mean, most agencies across the country right now are having problems just, just filling positions. Nobody wants to be a cop right now. Um, no pay is always an issue time at home is always an issue so the last agency that i worked for which i have nothing bad to say about this agency they stress training more than any agency that i know about but that comes at the price of that's work like you are constantly at work you don't get to um you don't get to be with your family. You don't get to decompress the way that you would like to. And so what I'd love to see with law enforcement as a whole across the nation is a, we, we hear this defund, we need two, three times the amount of funding being focused on law enforcement so that they can be spending 30 to 40% of their time training and the rest on the streets, putting that training to use. Um, there is a movement pushing for law enforcement to have more of a jujitsu foundational aspect, which I think would be fantastic. Um, I was thankful to have that. I was a lot less likely to draw my weapon in, in, in the line of duty uh, as opposed to go hands-on with somebody. But I'm also a bigger human being, so I felt confident doing that. Uh, but I think giving people that confidence that they can overwhelm somebody physically as opposed to going to a, a lethal um, tool is, is would be wildly beneficial to both the communities and the law enforcement agencies themselves. We do teach breathing techniques, but not to the the more like when we're on the shooting range, we're teaching to fire at the bottom of a breath versus the top of a breath or in the process of a breath. Uh, driving will utilize um, breath work. So I have had great conversations with different um, 
law enforcement officers where I go, you, we're already teaching these tools. You just have to recognize that those what they, th that's what they are and start utilizing them. But you also got to think when I'm driving around on patrol, I have body armor on, I have a tool belt around my waist, everything is collapsing me down and breathing becomes really short. Just mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of ways around that. What, so I, I recognized when I started to focus on ASM Foundation, there were really three key elements that I recognized were creating this problem. There's trauma, whether that's physical or emotional trauma, creating neuroinflammation. Prolonged stress will create the same inflammatory properties that um, blast or blunt trauma will to the brain. And those two qualities create sleep imbalances, which are perpetuated by day shift, night shift fluctuations. So that's essentially a powder keg, right? Where it, it's almost a surprise when you hear somebody who hasn't presented with some of these symptoms. If we can't get away from day shift, night shift, which we can't, we have to have people work a night shift and, and day shift. We're not gonna get away from blast trauma or the emotional trauma of, of witnessing and experiencing some of this stuff. And we're not gonna get away from prolonged stress ever in, in these careers. But that also applies to a lot of different careers out there in society as a whole. So what do we do? We have to start trying to heal these injuries as they're happening so that we don't get to a point that they're presenting with the symptoms. So that's why I'm talking to you today. That's why we started focusing on the nutraceutical that I created and just being proponents and trying to educate as much as possible. Like we were talking about earlier, the more awareness that we can, array, uh, we can raise in these arenas, the more people will start taking action, but it's going to take more of a collective effort from a lot more people. And unfortunately, Law enforcement as a whole in the U.S. does not want to be hamstrung by long-term disability claims. So they're a lot quicker to just dismiss this idea of PTSD being a repercussion of the job. So long-term efforts, I believe if we go to them with a, a, a means of resolve, of going, hey, if you're offering these outlets to keep your officers healthy, you, you will absolve yourself of these long-term disability claims. It's a lot easier when we're presenting them a solution versus coming to them with a problem and saying, this is your fault. Amen. So I think long-term, if we can get enough, the evidence is out there to support everything that I'm saying. Right. I'm, I'm not. I'm not getting behind anything that's. Too out there or, or off the wall or that there isn't scientific research to support. So now it's just a matter of. I think globally we're recognizing and you're starting to see more and more indicators that show that people are aware that SSRIs and pharmaceuticals are not a solution to anything. They may be a bridge like we talked about earlier, um, but these are also communities that are relying on MREs and gas station burritos for 
their their dietary staples. So it has a lot to do with education. There are no national standards of fitness for first responders. Wow. It's it's a crazy thing to say out loud, but it's true. So we have to get to it. And the unions are behind that effort to try to prevent it from, from coming to place. But in my opinion, if there are physical fitness standards, as there are, you have to go through site screenings. They're, they're not 100% effective, obviously. We have bad cops out there. Um, but there is a legitimate screening process that takes place. So we're looking at mental health, at least in the initial hiring stage. We should be looking at physical health on the same level and ensuring that these guys are, guys and girls are fit enough to, like, who are, I look at half the cops I see out on the street and I go, who are you going to save me from? Yeah. It's kind of the same way where they have a lot more time to work out on duty which is a a beneficial part, but um, yeah, I think we need national fitness standards implemented across the board for all of our first responders because they are the- Well, it's it's getting to the root, right? So when you say like it's being stopped at the union level or whatever, it's not about shaming the person coming onto the job. It's getting to the root of actually taking, helping them understand how to take care of themselves getting back to taking care of yourself so you can take care of other people. I mean, the principles are the same. And, you know, whenever you come at it from a place of growth, instead of shame, you you can, you know, you can make changes, but oftentimes that's not where, you know, that, that, that mainstream message doesn't, isn't coming from there right now, in my opinion. So, you know, um, Man, I feel like we could go on all day. So <laughs> I'm I so much appreciate your time. And there's there's one question um that I ask everybody that comes on my podcast because I'm so after this concept of hindsight and generational learning and the things we learn by going through hard things. Um and that question is what's a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? Oh man. Um There's so many. I think just breathe. If if I could have learned to de-stress and breathe and slow the process down and take things as they come as opposed to trying to be a wrecking ball for the entirety of my life, I think I would have been a lot further down this road at this point. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And yet, I mean, the the transformation that you have explained in your story today, and I I saw, you know, I hear your entire life, but I, what you've gone through in the last, you know, three years is, it's remarkable to sit here and listen and see the presence of mine and the, the vulnerability and, a you know, willingness to share your story to help other people. And that is just something that I am so inspired by every day when I'm humbled to take it in. And I thank you so much. And I I want people to be able to connect with you. And, you know, if you can help them find the Mark Gordon work and what you're doing at ASM, um, how can people um, find you to connect? 
Peter Depri at ASM Foundation is my email. Uh, we have Instagram. Our website needs to be updated, but it is available, and my contact information's on there. That's just www.asmfoundation.com, and ASM Foundation is the Instagram handle. I'm happy to to respond to anything there. Um, I think it's the one sentiment that just came up in my mind that that I really want to get across here. It trauma as a whole, regardless of of how we interpret the idea of trauma. I've gotten to a point that I believe steadfastly that the biggest gifts we are provided in life are trauma. Trauma is the gift. It's what you do with it that determines how your life's gonna play out from there. Trauma is relative. You can't say somebody else has it worse than I do and therefore mine is illegitimate. It is relative and it is specific to you and how you process that trauma and go on with the rest of your life is going to dictate how the rest of your life is. So I would encourage people to just take time with it, decide what, what you want your life to be and utilize that trauma as the gift that it is and can be. Wow, that's really powerful. And it comes through so huge in your story. And I thank you so much, like I said, for sharing it for normalizing it, for helping people realize that um, there's no shame in it and that we can be really deep, dark in a hole and come out of it in a way that helps ourselves and then ends up helping other people in the world and it really pays it forward for generations to come. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And, um, you know, just to my audience today, I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as I did because this was powerful. This is what I'm about in telling these stories. And um, thanks, Pete, because you are an amazing example that just tells me um, that I'm onto something with um, encouraging other people to just be real, be you, and be better. Thanks for joining me today. And um, let's just keep this conversation going because it's a really important one. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to What I Meant to Say. If you enjoyed this conversation, you know what to do. Subscribe, rate, review. And for more great content, courses, and lifestyle, go to BeBetterMedia.tv. Some of these stories contain sensitive content about real-life events, and all of the information in this podcast and from anywhere on the Be Better Media website is for informational purposes only. If you find that you need help, which we all do from time to time, please reach out to a licensed professional for help.